Hello and welcome to DairyPod. I'm John Penry from Dairy Australia. Nitrogen fertiliser use within our dairy systems has come at a sharp focus of late. The rapid price increase in the last 12 to 18 months has left many farmers questioning how profitable nitrogen use is. Add to this the fact that countries such as New Zealand have bought in caps on the amount of nitrogen that can be used annually on farm. Hence, farmers here in Australia are rightly concerned about how our dairy systems can still produce high amounts of homegrown forage and remain profitable while reducing the amount of nitrogen inputs. For this Dairy Pod episode, Dairy Australia's Liz Mann discusses with Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture Research Fellow Adam Langworthy aspects of new nitrogen research that is about to commence and what is the best way to make the most of the nitrogen that they now use. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's podcast. Um, and joining me today is Adam Langworthy from Tasmanian Institute of Research's Livestock Production Centre. Welcome, Adam. Would you just like to kick us off by letting us know who you are and what you do at, in Tasmania here? Thanks, Liz. Yeah, so I'm a feed-based researcher with the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture, and I guess yeah, my focus is... Um, really been on how we can efficiently produce uh, more homegrown feed for the dairy industry in temperate regions. So that'd be my main focus. And in recent times, nitrogen's become a pretty big component of my research focus. So looking at how we can farm with less uh, synthetic nitrogen fertilisers. That sounds exciting, Adam. We're going to get onto that in a minute. But firstly, we're catching up on the same day as the first open day for the um, Tasmanian Dairy Research Facility here at Elliot on the lovely northwest coast of Tasmania. Um, there's been a research facility here in Tasmania for quite a few years, but today it's pretty special. Do you want to just tell us why it's so special and what we're a bit excited about today? Yes, I guess it's um, a really exciting day that we've been able to show to the Tasmanian dairy farming community for the first time major upgrades that have occurred on the farm. So over the last couple of years, um, we've been doing a lot of work on the farm to bring it up to make it a, a really leading research facility for uh, future research that we're doing with model farms. So one of the big things, I guess, with the upgrade is that we've uh, built a new dairy. So the original dairy on the farm was a 20-a-side herringbone dairy, and that was actually situated on probably the worst part of the farm from a dairy farming point of view, very hilly. Because um, at that time, the research farm was used for a lot more than just dairy research. And now we've got the 50-bay rotary dairy in the middle of the farm so that from a cow flow point of view, it's really good. The, the cattle can access a lot of the pastoral areas and we can maintain good levels of production. Um, we've also upgraded our irrigation infrastructure. So we've just put in 32 hectares of fixed irrigation. And that's going to support some of the research that we'll probably talk about a bit later, Liz, where we look at having different model farms and we need to have really controlled irrigation on those areas. In the dairy, we've done a lot of improvements. So we've got milk meters on every stall. Um, we've got milk, fat and protein sensors. Um, as the cows exit the dairy, they're going through um, walkover scales. They're going through body uh, score condition scanners. So all sorts of, I guess, equipment so that we can be really closely monitoring our cows. So massive upgrade to the farm. It's so exciting, Adam. And having been involved with the industry, with the facility for quite a few years, it's just exciting to see the change that's been happening there. So we will come back to the research that's um, that's happening at the um, facility. But what I thought we might do, we are here to talk a little bit about nitrogen and some of the new information that is coming out of um, research in regards to nitrogen. But firstly, do we know? 
um, what nitrogen use is like nationwide? Like what's happened with nitrogen use over the last few years nationally? Do you know, Adam? If we go to the Dairy Australia Monitoring Project, you can see that at the moment about nationwide I've got 167 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare being applied across all dairy regions. However, we obviously have a fair bit of variation in that. So, you know, you go from places like New South Wales, we're probably seeing around 220. Down to South Australia, we might be around 100. What I actually did was I, I looked a little while ago at what is the nitrogen use on Southeast Australian dairy farms, so those temperate regions that tend to be more pastoral-based. And we can see that since about 2010 to 2020, it's, it's changed for about 104 kilos of nitrogen per hectare up to 184. So there has been an increase in over that period of time. Have more recently, we've seen from the most recent Victorian reporting, Victoria is the only region that for the last financial year has reported its nitrogen use figures. We've seen a decline of about 18%. And I think we can really see the reflection of the high nitrogen prices that have been experienced over the last 18 months or so in that reduction. So seeing nitrogen prices of $1,200, $1,400 a tonne for urea um, has certainly been causing a lot of farmers to be reconsidering their nitrogen use on their farms. And I know myself, I've had a lot of questions coming in from different dairy farmers wanting to find out how they can potentially farm still quite productively, but with less uh, synthetic nitrogen fertilisers. And when we talk about synthetic nitrogen fertilisers, we talk about, you know, ureas, sulphate of ammonias, those sort of products. Yeah. And that is that is quite an interesting, like, it, it is the back pocket that is driving the decisions at the minute. And it was probably also the increase um, productivity from that increase in the last 10 years from that 100 kilos of nitrogen per hectare to 180 kilos. Was there, like, have we seen an increase in terms of um, grass production and production as a result of that nitrogen? Well, I'd say there has been increase in production over that period, but I wouldn't say there's necessarily like a linear relationship with nitrogen fertilizer use. I think that, you know, you can just because a farmer's using a high level of nitrogen doesn't necessarily correlate to the fact they're having a really high level of production. I think with nitrogen use, you can still get really high levels of production with quite low seemingly levels of synthetic nitrogen inputs. I know that over in Ireland where they're doing research and grass systems, they're getting probably about 16 and a half tonne of utilized past with only 125 kilos of nitrogen per hectare. So you have to look at the figures that we've got now and the current utilisations on farms and, you know, probably a lot of farms aren't hitting that sort of level of utilisation, but they're probably applying a lot more nitrogen. So there's definitely room, I guess, to improve our nitrogen use efficiency on farm. Wow, that's a huge difference um, but from Australia to Ireland. And I know that yeah. it's quite often hard to compare internationally. What it, what is it that we need to be looking at in Australia that might be meaning that we are using more nitrogen but not necessarily getting the output from the use of that nitrogen? I think it's a lot that um, nitrogen often gets seen as this sort of gold bullet that, you know, if we've got a, you know, if a bit tight feed, we'll go and put it on, often becomes in a system used like a recipe, like cows graze the pasture, whack on the nitrogen, we'll have growth again, keep going. And we're not always thinking about our rate in a dynamic sense. So often we're just using these best bet rules that say they'll apply between 20 and 50 kilos of nitrogen per hectare per round. And we're not thinking about is nitrogen the most limiting factor at that point of time? Is it, you know, what rate should we be putting on? Should we be going down to the 20 mark? Should we be up at the 50 mark? We need to be thinking about, you know, is there enough soil moisture? What's the climate like? Is it warm enough to really be putting on nitrogen? Um, 
what's the nitrogen background levels in the soil? You know, if you've just come out of a really dry summer, you've probably had high levels of mineralization. That's where the different uh, bugs in the soil break down the organic matter and they release nitrogen that the plants can use. But if you've come out of a dry summer, the plants in a rain-fed system won't have been growing much, so your pasture. So there's a lot of nitrogen available in that autumn break period when moisture comes back online. So think about, you know, what is the background level of nitrogen? Um, and really, I guess, yeah, considering the plant's ability to take up that nitrogen and use it. And then finally, considering, you know, do you need all this extra feed? So if you're putting on nitrogen, you want to make sure that you've got a use for that that feed uh, to maximise your homegrown feed utilisation. So I think it's just considering, you know, nitrogen from a more dynamic point of view and also, uh, you know, times of the year when you do use and times of the year when you don't. So I know that those results in Ireland have actually been applying, you know, a fair bit of nitrogen early and late in the season. But in the middle of the season, when it's quite warm and your clover is going really well and provides a lot of nitrogen in its own right, then they're probably backing off the nitrogen and allowing the clover to do a lot of the work. So that way they're really maximising the gain from the nitrogen fertiliser they're using by applying it at the times when it's most needed. And I think, you know, especially like in parts of Tasmania, we don't always have very high levels of clover in our pastures because we have had quite historically high levels of nitrogen fertiliser use. So I think it's also about considering bringing some of those species back in, like the clovers, and then we can use our nitrogen a bit more strategically and not be so dependent on using fertiliser year-round. Yeah. And... Like just you talking about how we use that fertilizer. There is actually if people want to go to the um, podcast Dairy Pods History. There's another podcast that we have here um, with Karen Romano talking with um, Richard Eckhart around exactly how and when to use nitrogen. But just thinking about that and talking about that, um, you mentioned before that there's farmlet work that's coming at the research facility at um, at um, Elliot there. What what are the farmlets that you're looking at? Because they are very specific around synthetic nitrogen and, and the reduction in synthetic nitrogen use. Yeah, so I guess um, we're really looking at, I guess, how we can farm with less nitrogen fertiliser. And I guess that's a big change for us because as TIA, our focus probably in nitrogen research up until recently has been really how can we use nitrogen to achieve the highest possible yield from primarily ryegrass pastures and now we've changed to how can we achieve the highest yield from a limited nitrogen fertilizer input? So that looking at that reduced synthetic nitrogen fertilizer sort of sphere. And I guess what we're doing is we're going from, I guess, a high nitrogen input system. So applying 300 kilos of nitrogen per hectare per year. And to put that into perspective, and that's coming in a, in a synthetic nitrogen fertilizer form. So to put that into perspective, your re is about 46% nitrogen. So if you double that rate, you're up at, you know, where you'd be from a urea point of view. Um, so up near the 600 mark. And then we've got a pretty traditional perennial ryegrass white clover mix. So what, you know, you see a lot of, I guess, in this part of the world. Then we've got our second farmlet treatment which has 150 units of nitrogen per hectare per year being put on as a synthetic nitrogen fertiliser. And then we've got the same pasture mix, so still that perennial ryegrass with a little bit of white clover. Then we go to a more alternative pasture mix, so still got 150 units of nitrogen per hectare per year being applied as synthetic nitrogen fertiliser, but now we've got 40% perennial ryegrass, we've got 30% white clover, We've got 30% plantain and we've put in a 
quite a high component of clover because research would suggest um, they need at least 20% white clover in your pastures to be contributing a significant amount of nitrogen for the ryegrass. Um, we've also put in plantain, and the reason we put in plantain is it's a really great plant uh, from a nitrogen point of view in your pastures. So the reason we've included plantain is that it's got a range of properties that can help with the nitrogen cycle. So it helps reduce nitrogen loss from your farming system to the environment and maximises the chance of that nitrogen being taken up by your grasses and other plants in the pasture and able to be used to produce more feed. So the first thing that plantain does is it's a little bit like coffee in the sense that it has a diuretic effect. So when the cows eat the plantain, generally the, con the amount of urine that they're producing increases and that decreases the concentration of nitrogen in their urine. And the importance of that is that cows excrete a lot of nitrogen in their urine and generally that's really concentrated. So in these small spots that they urinate on, you'll get nitrogen at about 700 to 1,000 kilos per hectare. So that's really high and that's quite prone to being leached out of the system and lost. So the more dilute the urine, the lower the nitrogen patches that you're getting in terms of their concentration of nitrogen, and the more chance of that nitrogen being retained in the system and taken up by your other pasture grasses and used for growth. The next thing that does is by the cows consuming the plantain, you actually find that less nitrogen is diverted to urine and more nitrogen is put into things like dung and milk. And the advantage of that is that obviously with milk, nitrogen gets removed from the system, so it's not going to be lost to the environment, which is one of the reasons we want plantain there, so not getting these potential nitrogen losses to rivers and et cetera. But the other thing is with the nitrogen being diverted to the dung, nitrogen dung is generally a lot more stable than the nitrogen urine, so less prone to being lost to the environment. And there's more chance that it'll work its way back into the system to be again used by your grasses to fuel growth. The next thing that plantain does, and it's two things, is that it can actually reduce the conversion of ammonium to nitrate. So when you apply urea, whether that's coming out of the cow and urine um, or you're applying as urea fertilizer, you'll have it broken down to ammonium and then it'll get converted into nitrate. Now the ammonium is a more stable nitrogen form in the soil than the nitrate and plantain roots can produce certain products that actually reduce the conversion of the ammonium to the nitrate. So it's mean that you've got more stable nitrogen forms in your soil again. And the other thing is that when the cows consume the plantain, there's compounds in the leaves that they absorb and then they emit when they urinate, and that can again help to reduce that transfer in the soil. So plantain really helps to keep more nitrogen in the system and reduce the chance of nitrogen being lost from the system. So that's beneficial both from an environmental point of view and an economic point of view because the more nitrogen we keep in the system, the less nitrogen that we have to keep putting in to replace what's being lost. And then the last farmlet treatment that we're looking at is a little bit of a, I guess, alternative sort of farmlet mix. It's going to have potentially very little synthetic nitrogen fertilizer being put on, potentially almost nothing, and it's got a really high diversity of species in there. And the reason we've done that is there's been a lot of interest amongst the Australian dairy farming community about some of these um, quite diverse pasture mixtures and what their potential role in a dairy farming point of view will be. A lot of talk about them improving the resilience of pastures to things like climate extremes and other things like that. So a lot of interest in them. So in this one, we've got, again, just like the farm that we just discussed, we've got 40% grasses, 30% clovers and 30% herbs. So plantains are herb. But in this one, we've got a whole range of different types of grasses. So we've got tall fescue, some are active, some are active coxfoots, perennial ryegrass, 
and brome. And then the clovers have got red clover, strawberry clover, and white clover. And the herbs, not only have we got plantain, but we've put in chicory as well. So it's a really diverse mix. It's got a whole uh, array of different rooting types in that. So you've got some with some plants that are quite deep roots that can be quite advantageous for reducing nitrogen loss through the soil. So yeah, really diverse mixture. So we've set up all these farmers with the aim of really understanding how we can best help the industry to adapt, if needed, to farm with less synthetic nitrogen fertilizer inputs. And to do that, we've brought in these different pasture mixtures where we're increasing the amount of nitrogen being brought in through legumes. And then we've got some other handy species that can help to retain more nitrogen in the system. That's fascinating. And I find the role of plantain, which, you know, whenever I've walked across pasture and I've seen the plantain head coming up, it sort of makes you feel like the pasture is a bit messy and, you know, it's not being grazed well. That's going to take a real mind shift um, in how we look at our pastures and what we have in our pastures really, isn't it, as we go forward if we're going to consider these different species? Definitely. So I think one of the really good things about how we're doing this experiment, so I guess I should probably say what a farmlet actually is. So a farmlet's, each of these treatments is a farmlet and they're basically a model farm. So each model farm has a number of paddocks, it has its own herd of cows that gets rotated amongst those paddocks and then we're tracking all the physical production as well as the financials from those different farmlets. And putting something like this into a farmlet research experiment means that Dairy farmers can come along, they can see what's going on, they can see, you know, what the challenges are that we're facing, the successes that we're having, if we have failures, what they are and how we could have done, you know, better to avoid those. And they can see it all happening on a research farm that isn't exposed to all the financial risk that, you know, a, a commercial dairy farm would be. And then they can take those findings home and use them on their own property. So it's definitely a whole mindset shift to go from a nice, clean, perennial ryegrass pasture, something with, you know, nine species or more. You've got some going to seed heads potentially, not looking, you know, as nice as you might want. Uh, so I think being able to actually see it being completed at a whole farm level, not just some little plots uh, that you go to a field day for, but seeing that whole farm level really helps with that. And we're going to be, as part of this farm experiment, producing a monthly or so industry report that will give to farmers all the different financials and physical productions on those farmlets that they can then go and they can watch that as we go through the three years of the farmlet experiments to see how they're tracking and to be able to, I guess, learn from that and see what parts they might like to adapt on their own properties. Yeah, now that sounds, it's going to be great. Um, you did mention uh, challenges and yep. I suppose one of the things we did that was mentioned today was just around the um, establishment of the multi-species pasture that has proved a little challenging shall we say Adam? Definitely definitely yeah yeah. What'd you find? Well I guess the biggest problem putting in mixed pasture is weed management so when you just sow ryegrass pasture we've got lots of herbicides available that especially if we've done the complete cultivation we're sowing it in and we're expecting a high level of weed germination as well good options available to be able to go and clean that up and get yourself back to pretty much a perennial ryegrass-based pasture. When you go for something that's really diverse, can be quite challenging to manage those weeds because your herbicide options become quite reduced. And when you've got something like chicory and plantain together, you've pretty much got no herbicide options available to manage in that mixed pasture. So from our point of view, we definitely had... Um, 
wee challenges during the establishment. I guess one of the big learnings would be pre-prep. So the couple of years leading up to thinking about doing something like this, get your weeds as in order as you can. Now, you're never going to completely clean out your weed seed bank if it's quite large, but you can do your best to try and minimise the amount of weed present there, minimise over the seasons leading up to it, the flowering of weed species and building up that seed bank. The next thing is I think we sewn everything together. If I had my time again, I'd probably look at doing something like sewing in the grasses potentially first, then being able to do our weed management. And then once we came to, you know, we sowed them in autumn. Once we come into the following spring, if you had access to irrigation, being able to sow in the clovers and some of the herbs as well, so that you've already done a lot of your weed management and then you're just over sowing those in and there's not as high a chance of weeds. The other thing is, I guess, in the commercial situation, over sowing is a really good tool. So not actually working up the seed bed as we did, which obviously brings a lot of weed seed to the, the forefront to germinate, but actually just sowing into your perennial ryegrass pasture. So picking out those pastures, they're running out where there are gaps starting to form points where you can actually get establishment and then sowing those pastures back in. And I guess in terms of getting the grasses in, it's, it's not too bad. With clovers, we've actually been doing some over-sowing work with clover at the moment on the farm. There is a reasonable amount involved in getting the clover to succeed, so we've had to put the farm on a really fast round. So we've got the cows going around every 16 to 18 days, just because everything you're trying to do with putting clover into a pasture, is, especially during establishment, is to keep the canopy open, so there's lots of light going down to those clover seedlings. And we've also had to pull out the use of synthetic nitrogen fertiliser over this summer period just after the initial sowing of the clover to make sure it has the best chance to get up. So there are certainly some challenges with that over-sowing work, but I think um, the minimising the weed coming up is probably one of the biggest things uh, that you can do to to get an alternative pasture mixture into your, your pasture. Yeah, and I suppose in this case, you are setting up for farm at work where you <clears throat> have everything ready to go. That's right. Right on time, whereas... A farmer on their farm, they will have the opportunity to build up over time and transition pasture over time rather than going from one to the other instantly. We'll yeah, that's that's definitely right. Yeah, there wouldn't be too many farms where they're trying to take every pasture on their property to one certain pasture type in a year, like which is what we've had to do. So mm. I guess from a research point of view, that's created a lot more headaches for us. But obviously, yeah, in a commercial farm, you're probably going to be picking out your lowest performing pastures and then going and addressing those, so oversowing the mixtures that you want into those, and then going the next year with the next lowest performing pastures. Yeah, excellent. So leading up to this work, you, um, you've been doing a bit of work in nitrogen historically prior to the start of this farmlet. Um, I was quite interested today, you were talking about some work that you've done around um, looking at the genetic variation in ryegrass and the, how much ryegrass how much nitrogen ryegrass needs and you were just talking about an experiment where you looked at ryegrass varieties from the 1950s I think it was quite old ryegrasses right through to now you just want to talk to us about what that experiment found and yeah what what the implications are for what we can do on farm now yeah, so I guess um, that's where it really came out of, and I know a lot of farmers will identify hearing this message that, you know, that the nitrogen use efficiency of ryegrass has been dramatically increased by breeding. <clears throat> and we hear that a lot. Um, so I guess our interest was looking at, well, has breeding actually affected the amount of nitrogen that ryegrass needs within the leaves to grow? So we're not looking at 
the amount of nitrogen you need to put down as fertiliser, but the actual percentage of nitrogen in the, the matter that the cows are eating, so all those leaves, et cetera. And we took ryegrasses from back from, I think it was actually 1940s, we took the original Victorian ryegrass. So we took seed that had been stored in 1940, put into a gene bank and held there. And then we took ryegrasses right through to the current day ryegrass and we took everything sort of between. So we're trying to map some of the big changes in breeding that may have affected the nitrogen requirements of ryegrass. And we grew them up in, I guess, quite artificial conditions. So we actually grew them up in sand in a glasshouse environment. That was just so that we could make sure that every other nutrient apart from nitrogen was there present excess. So there was nothing else that was going to affect our results then the amount of nitrogen that we gave the plants and then they uptook. And what we did was for each of the different cultivars of ryegrass that we looked at, we saw how much nitrogen would they need in their leaves to achieve 90% of maximum yield. And 90% was picked because generally we're trying to achieve 90% of maximum production because once you start trying to grow ryegrass above 90%, it becomes quite inefficient in terms of your nitrogen use. You're sucking a lot more loss of nitrogen and it's just not going to be very economically efficient to do that. So 90% is generally the figure that we go for. And we found that across the different ryegrasses that we looked at, that there really wasn't a lot of difference in the nitrogen that they required to grow. So they're all requiring about 2.6% nitrogen, and that equates to about 16% crude protein. And 16% crude proteins, you know, fairly reasonable from a production point of view for your animals. So <clears throat> in terms of what has been previously talked about, it's often been 3.2% being the figure used. So that's around about 20% crude protein. So, so we showed that Relative to the, the figure that has been used previously, ryegrass does require less nitrogen. However, there's not a lot of difference between the different cultivars. And the reason that our figure is a lot lower than what has previously been used, so the 3.2% as opposed to our 2.6%, is that that work was actually done with seedlings. And seedling ryegrass as opposed to – so we did our work with these mature swords that we'd actually grown up for about a year and had them really well developed. When you have seedlings, they're basically all leaf. They've got no structural material in them, so none of that stem and, and other parts that the mature ryegrass established pasture would. And leaves generally require a high, higher amount of nitrogen than the more stemmy bits of the grass. So our results actually probably a lot more applicable – to farms in Australia that have these established ryegrass pastures. We also found interestingly, we had a summer active Coxford in there, Liz, and a summer active tall fescue. And the reason we put those in were we we're just trying to see if there were other grasses that would fit easily into a temperate grazing system and how their nitrogen levels might differ from ryegrass. So we found their levels were also pretty similar to ryegrass. And it's not that surprising because when you look across sort of groups of plants, nitrogen doesn't change a whole heap. So in terms of the actual requirements in the plant. So our results, I guess, are confirming that sort of line of thought and, and showing that, you know, what cultivar you've got isn't necessarily going to have a huge bearing on the actual amount of nitrogen they need per kilo of dry matter. But the thing to take from this is that doesn't mean that there that there's not differences potentially in ryegrasses in the efficiency with which they can take up nitrogen from the environment. So ryegrasses may differ in their root systems and their ability to take up nitrogen that's supplied. So that's called their external nitrogen use efficiency. So when you put on a hunt, you know, 50 kilos of nitrogen, how much of that nitrogen gets taken up by the plant, that's that's what we call external nitrogen use efficiency. So there's probably a reasonable chance there's a high level variation across ryegrasses for that because you see reasonable amount of variation within 
ryegrasses for root growth habits. But in terms of their internal nitrogen sufficiency, so once that nitrogen gets into the plant, how much dry matter can they produce? We weren't seeing a whole heap of variation. So if we're not seeing that variation, then Adam, it, what does that mean? Because we've obviously, since the 1940s, increased the amount of nitrogen we're putting into our systems. What does that mean for that extra nitrogen that we are putting in? Obviously, some plants are using it more efficiently, but are we wasting nitrogen? Well, not necessarily, because the fact is, if if all plants, all ryegrasses need 2.6% nitrogen, if you have a ryegrass that has a much higher yield potential than another one, they're going to still need a lot more nitrogen to reach that yield potential. So they require 2.6% nitrogen, so 2.6 grams of nitrogen in every 100 grams of dry matter that they produce. But if you've got one that has a yield potential of you know, 20 tonnes and one that has a yield potential of 14 tonnes, the one with a 20-tonne yield potential is going to require a lot more nitrogen. So breeding has advanced the yield potential for ryegrass a lot. And that's because they've made them be able to deal a lot better with some of the stresses that the plants encounter in their environment in Australia, um, that they have better growth in other seasonal periods. So there's been a lot of effort to, to breed for more growth in the summer months, the autumn months, the cooler months, as opposed to just having these, you know, if you go back to the original Victorian ryegrass, a really spring dominant production trend. So <clears throat> there's been a lot of effort to increase the yield potential and to be able to realise that yield potential on farm, you will need more nitrogen to do it. So just because we've been increasing nitrogen doesn't mean that we've been, um, you know, wasting it. It's just that the, the yield potential of ryegrass has increased. And because of that increase, people have wanted to increase the amount of nitrogen they're applying so they can see the realisation of those higher yields on their farm. So... You, you've talked a lot and we've talked a lot about synthetic nitrogen and reducing synthetic nitrogen use, particularly within the farmlets and the work that you're doing there. Alternative nitrogen use. There's a lot more talk now about composts and biochars um, and using them as nitrogen. Is there any work that's been done in that space? Yes, Liz. We have been um, doing work in organic amendments and I guess a lot of the interest for looking at organic amendments um, and the organic amendments are things like your compost, your manures, uh, manufacturing food waste that may be applied to, in an agricultural scene to apply nutrients. And I guess from a nitrogen point of view, the interest in organic amendments is a lot of the nitrogen often in them is bound in organic compounds. And organic compounds generally take a while to be broken down to release that nitrogen. So the nitrogen's released at a slower rate than if you applied something like a synthetic nitrogen fertilizer, where a lot of the nitrogen supplied in that becomes rapidly converted into an inorganic form that the plants can uptake. So you get these really big hits of nitrogen that can be quite quickly lost from the environment if it's not taken up by the plants. With these organic um, Amendments, obviously, yeah, that, that benefit to the fact that nitrogen's more slowly released and the thought is that makes it more likely that the plants could take it up and potentially not lost from the environment. However, that's not necessarily always true. But um, we looked at an organic amendment in the form of a compost, so a commercially available compost, and we also looked at uh, what would be referred to as stored effluent solids, so basically just the, the dung the animals are, um, are missing. And we looked at the rate at which nitrogen was released from them over 12 months. And we did this in two different sort of types of soil. So we took um, soil from farms with high synthetic nitrogen fertilizer history, so 350 or 400 kilos of nitrogen per hectare per year being applied, and farms with lower levels, so 70 to 100 kilos of synthetic nitrogen per hectare per year. Um, 
And then we compared the rate of nitrogen release in those two soils. And what we saw was that from both the organic amendments, there really wasn't a whole heap of nitrogen release full stop. So in terms of the compost, we saw that pretty much the only nitrogen that would be released for the plants to uptake was what was already present in, a, in an inorganic form. So, And that was a relatively low proportion of the compost. And that's not wholly surprising because um, composts have a lot of really complex molecules in them. They're really hard for the bugs in your soil to break down and make that nitrogen available. And I think the story from that is that, you know, if you're applying things like compost, generally it's a long-term gain a game if you want to see the nitrogen release from them. So it's not going to be available overnight. And, you know, it's questionable how much nitrogen is really going to come into play. And the other thing with the compost uh, to take into account is there's a lot of other nutrients being released from them. So one thing we learned from the study was it's probably not wise to look at compost as a nitrogen source in their own right, because if you start applying them as a nitrogen source, it's probably not going to be very economical. And the other thing is you're going to have a lot of things like phosphorus, potassium and salts being imported. So you need to look at them from a more holistic point of view and think, what elements am I bringing into my farm? And then making sure you're getting the right balances so you don't start you know, favouring one element and causing a massive imbalance that you're importing masses of phosphorus and getting these massive phosphorus stocks in your soil or something like that. With the um, manure, we actually saw an interesting relationship where there was a fair bit of release after it was applied, but then for a period of about three months after it was applied, we actually had the nitrogen levels in the soil declining below if we hadn't have applied that effluent solids. And the reason for that is that all the bugs in the soil are working really hard to break down that product. And in the process of breaking down that product, they're actually taking nitrogen out of the soil to help them grow while they do all that, that work on the actual effluent solids. So the learning from that would be if you're applying a large amount at any one time of effluent solids, you might want to apply a synthetic nitrogen fertiliser over that three-month period so you don't get a yield penalty from doing it. After the three-month period, we started to get to a state towards the end of the, the nine months of having applied it that we got a little bit of nitrogen release back to the plants. But it wasn't a whole heap. And this whole problem, I mean, if you applied it more like an actual an effluent slurry where you still have a lot of the urine in, you probably wouldn't have this um, this sort of reduction in nitrogen in your soils because you'd be bringing in a lot of readily available nitrogen from that urine initially. But we saw that when you do apply it by itself as a, as a dried effluent solid, that you will get that extraction of nitrogen from your soil over the first three months of application, which is something to be aware of and to consider when you're applying it. And we did see, however, that between farms with a high synthetic nitrogen history and a low synthetic nitrogen history, that there was a little bit more nitrogen released on the farms with a high synthetic nitrogen history. So is that meaning that the nitrogen stored in the soil from the historic synthetic um, application is being released and used? Like, would, would you expect to see that if you reduce that synthetic nitrogen input on those farms, that the nitrogen available in the soil would eventually be used over time. Do you know I mean, <clears throat> yeah, you would expect that if you start um, reducing your nitrogen inputs into a system that obviously you're going to potentially have everything becoming a bit more reliant on the organic matter over time, it'd take a long time to start to see those big differences though. We actually found that on the farms with a high and a low synthetic nitrogen fertiliser history, that there wasn't a whole heap of difference actually in the nitrogen levels present in their soils, even though they had really distinctly different nitrogen fertiliser histories, which was quite interesting 
So in other words, it's watch this space on compost. In other Pretty words. much, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. So excellent. All right. Well, we might nearly wrap up at that, I reckon, Adam. It's been fantastic chatting to you. You mentioned about partway through that with the Dairy High Project, the the four farmlets will have an industry report that you're regularly putting out. Where might people be able to get a hold of that if they're interested? Um, so probably look at getting that put up on both the TIA and Dairy Australia websites and that will probably start from the first whole lactation between the cows through. So that will be um, the spring or well, spring calving of 23. So we'd be looking probably around, you know, September sort of, of 23 when we'd start yeah. getting that sort of data coming through. Excellent. And, yeah, that's right because the farmlets are, I suppose we need to just make sure people are aware, the farmlets are in establishment phase. You're trying to get the pastures right. Um, and, you know, you mentioned that there's a whole stack of different mixes that you've got to work out how to manage. Um, and so, yeah, as of next year, the the real research will really kick in. That's right. Yeah. So it's still really an establishment phase at the moment, getting everything well set up in terms of our pastures and our cow flow systems so that we can have a really successful start in the um the lactate well the calving of 23. Excellent. Well thanks so much Adam. It's been fantastic talking to you. Um, I'm sure that everyone listening will be keen to follow what's happening. Um, and we look forward to talking to you again in the future when um, we've got a few more results to talk about and we can hear what's going on. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Liz. No worries. Thank you. If you'd like to find out more about the best ways to make the most of your nitrogen fertiliser or to follow the Dairy Height 2 project, please visit www.dairyaustralia.com.au forward slash dairy high. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast and remember there are plenty more on a broad range of dairy industry topics covered in the Dairy Pod program. So please don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform. If you have any questions or ideas for future podcast episodes, please get in touch with us by emailing dairypod at dairyaustralia.com.au. Thanks very much for listening and bye for now. Dairy Pod.